a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. As the curtain falls on COP28 in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, a last-minute landmark deal with global repercussions has finally been approved. Nearly 200 countries reached an unprecedented climate agreement, urging a decisive shift away from fossil fuels. The first of its kind, by the way. Are these commitments the much-needed lifeline, steering humanity away from the ominous point of no return? Can our collective endeavors truly rewrite the narrative of the environmental crisis? To shed light on some of these issues, I'm joined by Wu Changhua, China Director of the Office of Jeremy Redfin and Vice Chairperson of Governing Council at Asia Pacific Water Forum. We also have Mr. Ma Jun, Director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. They both participated in the first week of COP28 in Dubai, in fact. And we also are joined by Dimitri DeBoer, Director for Asia at Kleined Earth. Uh, Dimitri, let me start with you. Delegates at the United Nations COP28 uh, talks in Dubai issued this final agreement. Uh, some say this is historic, this is uh, significant. Some say it does not come far enough. Uh, what do you think? How successful has this final agreement at COP28 been? Well, I'd say it's a, an achievement in the sense that it actually puts language around uh, moving away from fossil fuels. That's really important. Uh, for you know governments because ultimately it's it's about government responsibility coming out of these cops right what are governments supposed to be doing in the years ahead um, they know now they need to move away uh, transition away uh, from fossil fuels and that has to be in line with a net zero situation in 2050 uh, that might seem like a long time in the future but it's only 27 years uh, and there's an awful lot of work to do in that sense it's very successful uh, Director Wu, what do you think? How successful has this COP20 been? Uh, what's your takeaway from the final agreement? Well, I would say it's a landmark milestone, and uh, in a way, because this is the first time ever uh, humanity has decided to take this step forward together. Uh, how significant it is, uh, let me add really the fundamental piece of the puzzle here. As we all know, our human economy, our global economy, our infrastructure, you know, our all the systems actually we have today that are being operated are built upon fossil fuels. So this is ever the first time the global community has decided to take on this step forward to transition away from fossil fuels. That's where the significance lies. Is it easy? It's not. It will never be. And whether we're going to get it to where we want to be, say, get to net zero by 2050, I don't know yet at this moment. We'll see. But really how far we can travel forward, how quickly can we get there, really depends on the collective actions and deliveries, as well as actually the accountability ensured outcomes there. So fingers crossed. The, just add one another dimension about the fossil fuels there. So we are standing in the middle of the way between 1992 when the Climate Convention was the first born and the 2050. If you look at the last three decades also, we managed so far only reduce 4% of our reliance on fossil fuels. Can we really get there? Those are the questions we need to address and we need to ask ourselves and also trying to figure out how to address them together. Right. Uh, Director Ma, let me turn to you. The final agreement uh, of the 200 plus uh, delegations agreed on one thing that is transitioning away from fossil fuel to uh, quote unquote. But it did not say that there's going to be a phase out of fossil fuel or nor does it require countries to you know, stop using fossil fuel in the medium or, or long run. Uh, what do you think about all this? 
Yeah, I agree with uh, uh, Changhua and Dimitri that this is a landmark deal. Uh, of course, we also need to recognize this is a compromise because, uh, you know, so many countries are uh, coming together to discuss about this issue, which is uh, fundamental to human society. It's about energy supply. And these countries are in very different development phases, and some of them are, are oil and gas producing countries. Uh, some uh, still, uh, you know, lack of uh, so much access, much access to power supply. Uh, there are still many people in some of the developing countries. Uh, so countries are in very different situation. Eventually, you know, we haven't really come up to the very term of uh, phase out or even phase down. But it, uh, on the other hand, transitioning away from the fossil fuel uh, in the energy system, this have pointed to, uh, to the direction to go, which is uh, still highly crucial, uh, you know, for so many countries uh, to reach this consensus. Uh, uh, so in that sense, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very important. Uh, Dimitri, Director Ma talked about the fact that this could have been a, a grand uh, piece of uh, compromise, uh, you know, negotiations behind the scenes uh, amongst the delegates uh, in the span of 10 plus days. Uh, what kind of a compromise do you see from the delegations uh, at this COP? Well, I think what you're seeing is that some countries where uh, there's a strong reliance currently still on fossil fuels, find it harder to to go into a meeting like this and agree on language that says phase out fossil fuels you know there's there's also a lot of interest at stake uh countries many countries still feel like fossil fuels give them energy security um you know we i think all changhua Jin and i we're all uh, green experts right so we we understand how renewable energy actually gives you uh, a lot of security as well but it's a different type of security you have to think about your energy system in a different way and that just requires a lot of changes and so changes are difficult so so you know people who are in the fossil fuel business uh, may find it difficult to imagine a future where uh, where you phase out fossil fuels completely so so some countries just uh, you, you know are, are not ready to fully embrace that but i think over time what we'll see is that more and more countries will be able to demonstrate that you actually have you can have uh, a lot of security uh, with a low carbon energy grid and that, uh, that needs to be proven, and then that, that model will show the way. In fact, China is doing a terrific job in rolling out renewable energy. Yeah, talking about China, actually we caught up with uh, China's special climate uh, envoy, Xi Jinping, at COP uh, in Dubai, and uh, right after a, a press conference at the end of COP, uh, Xi Jinping once again stated, and I quote, uh, I have participated in climate negotiations for 16 years. The most difficult one is this conference. Uh, Madame Wu, why do you think he said that? Well, it's really understandable. Uh, he participated in 16, uh, and I, I participated 10. Of course, we have totally different roles. He is in the driver's seat. I'm more like on the side as an observer there. Yeah, you have important roles uh, to I play do understand. Too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do understand his point. I wouldn't say actually the previous COPs actually had, had been easy. Uh, international negotiation process is always a compromise making process. Uh, so nothing is easy because, the, you know, in order to really reach a sort of consensus among all the nations globally, uh, it, it's always a give and take situation there. Uh, the reason why he felt actually this is the most difficult one is that, as, as we are talking about here, 
because of the milestone uh, we have achieved so far. Now, finally, we have a global consensus and uh, to uh, transition away from fossil fuels. This is really fundamental piece of the puzzle. Just imagining uh, how difficult actually this is going to be for every nation on this planet going into the next few decades there. Uh, as we we're talking about here, different countries have in different situations, have different energy mix, and uh, the journey will be very, very different uh, in terms of level of difficulties there. But one thing I do want to point out there, and uh, so it's a sort of embedded in the final package, uh, the language, you know, there are a few principles actually are further emphasized, re-emphasized actually, for instance, the common but differentiated responsibility, respective capabilities, equity, fairness, just, so all those sort of language there actually embedded in it. The wording is sort of very interesting in a way. It itself actually reflects the difficulties as well as the compromise probably we have to make in order to reach consensus. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have traveled this far. So I do understand, uh, you know, climate envoy Xie Zhenghua's point. And also, actually, he is retiring. For, this is his last, last COP. Uh, so, of course, uh, I do understand and applaud for his, all his leadership and achievements and wish him good luck and also hoping China will continue uh, to play more important role in the global process down the road. Yeah, now the, the torch of uh, climate action has been uh, passed down from Mr. Xie to uh, another generation, uh, obviously. Um, Mr. Ma, let me turn to you, other than the phase out or rather the transitioning away from fossil fuel, what are some of the other aspects from the final document that sticks out to you? Uh, for example, the capture and storage of carbon, uh, the, the use of methane, uh, the role of corporations and enterprises. Uh, what do you think about the other aspects of this final agreement? This final agreement, everyone now uh, focused their attention on the transitioning away from the fossil fuel. But in the meantime, we need to recognize that um, uh, the terms, as Changhua put it, you know, the terms put on this, uh, uh, this transitioning, transitioning of our energy uh, supply system got to be, got to happen in a, in a just, orderly and equitable way. Uh, as Dimitri put it, we need to recognize the need to ensure energy security by uh, all these countries. Uh, so in this uh, document, uh, there are also quite a few measures, uh, very, very important uh, agreement reached. One of that is the tripling, tripling of renewable energy capacity. And in the meantime, doubling the improvement rate of the energy efficiency. I think this part is uh, crucial for us to try to achieve the transitioning uh, because without building, establishing this new energy mix, new energy system that focus on solar and wind and other renewable energy, uh, there's no way to really uh, try to uh, transition away from the coal. In the meantime, you mentioned about CCS and CCUS. This is also very, very important because you know, toward the end of the day, some of the fossil fuel uh, going to continue to be used uh, for decades of time, you know, with, uh, with, with the current uh, term of agreement. Uh, so how do we balance that with the need to, uh, to have a deep and, uh, and rapid reduction of greenhouse gas emission? The way is to try to abate those emissions. So capture and storage, if the industry, if the countries uh, really feel that uh, they, they can afford. Uh, so far, it's a very high cost 
of uh, CCS and CCUS solutions, uh, then probably they can go for that. Methane is, is another issue that is uh, uh, going to buy us time. If we can cut the meth methane reduction, particularly in this decade, it's going to buy us time uh, to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius target within reach. On this point, China and U.S. made historic agreement on this methane uh, issue. I think it's also played a very important role. Mm. Uh, Dimitri, talking about the role of the United States, uh, U.S. Uh, envoy on climate, John Kerry, said this after the press conference. Um, he said, the final document is a success and vindication of multilateralism. What do you think about that? Um, also considering the fact that the election year is down the horizon, we have a primary soon in Iowa, Des, uh, Des Moines. Um, could all this change? Well, uh, his point is, is really important, right? That the world needs to be working together to address climate change. And uh, especially if the largest emitting countries, US and China, can see eye to eye and continue to have uh, an active dialogue on this, um, I consider that an extremely important thing for the world because all countries in the world and businesses, people need to make decisions. Where do they invest? Where do they think this is heading? Um, how genuine is the world about this uh, climate transition? Having that multilateral approach you know, demonstrate success is absolutely of critical importance. So, yeah, uh, I, would, I would support that, uh, that, that it is important. And of course, he's only saying it because geopolitics are very complicated these days. Um, and so how to, you know, make sure that we, we can work together. Uh, and we do, you know, and, and, and in climate in many ways is one of those things where we see there is a common enemy. We have to work together and hopefully that can work, be a force for peace in this world and be a force for good. You're talking about force for good. Uh, China and the United States, their uh, collaboration are key. Before COP28, leaders of uh, China and the United States met in San Francisco right after they issued the Sunnyland statements on climate. Let's listen to what John Kerry, the U.S. climate envoy, and Xi Jinping, China's special representative on climate change, had to say earlier on at COP28 in Dubai. Here in Dubai, we have already fulfilled part of what we agreed in Sunnyland, which is working together to make a successful COP28. We both hope and, and uh, are pleased that we think our joint work not only advanced our respective national efforts, but also reflected at the COP in many ways throughout the creating of momentum and providing substantive ideas. Director Wu, what influence do you believe the recent Beijing-Washington interactions have had in shaping global policies, especially the final agreement at COP28? Well, the, uh, how the U.S. and China, the world's two largest economies and also the two largest emitters, work with each other, right? The relationship between the two happens to be a fundamental piece of the puzzle as well, because if you're looking back to the Paris 2015, COP21, the so-called success, uh, definitely the bilateral relationship, the agreements signed before Paris Agreement played a significant role for the outcome of the Paris Agreement. To a certain extent, that was repeated this year. Uh, you know, right before COP28, the Sunnyland Joint Statement definitely set a good foundation indicating to the global community that no matter how complicated the geopolitical politics actually have been, the two largest economies decided to take on their responsibility, at least actually indicating they are willing to work with each other 
So from that perspective, I think that's very significant. Then if you look at it down to the specifics there, Margie mentioned early on, so the two largest economies agreed in the Sunnyland joint statement that we're going to move forward actually by tripling renewable energy, you know, addressing the methane and other greenhouse gases emissions there, and besides and many other actions there. They are pretty much aligned with this transition away uh, from fossil fuels, but uh, they seem to be sort of uh, in, a, in a very conservative, conservative way. So when the two countries actually really went to COP28, they probably to a certain extent overwhelmed by the, the high demand of the global community, the rest of the world, to accelerate the process. So in the end, maybe to a certain extent, that's a little bit of compromise actually as well on the part of US-China bilateral collaborations there. It is no, it's a global issue. It is, we have to rely on multilateralism to address that. So yes, it's important for the two countries to work together, but in the meantime, they have to work with the global community to really advance uh, this transition by taking on their leadership. But in the meantime, they do need also to take a second thought in terms of how they, the two, should really, really work with each other rather than being stuck in the current geopolitical uh, saga. Yeah, a lot more needs to be done. Uh, and China and the United States are, are steering uh, the way in uh, many uh, ways. Uh, Director Ma, we're, we're talking about this 1.5 degree. That is uh, the, the amount that we have to keep the wo world uh, from warming up uh, by the end of this century. But according to the global stock take that was issued on day one at COP28, the, the world will be warming at about 2.4 degrees Celsius uh, as, uh, at the current uh, pace. If no action, no further action is taken, how significant and how important is it for all of us to keep the 1.5 degree target in range? It is very important. Uh, the Paris Agreement uh, said that we should try to keep the temperature rise uh, well below 2 degrees Celsius uh, and in, in the meantime try to pursue the efforts to limit it to 1.5. Uh, at this moment, so far, you know, the temperature rise uh, caused by, uh, by uh, human activities uh, uh, has reached 1.1 degrees Celsius. But even just with this 1.1 degrees Celsius, it's already making so much impact, uh, you know, that, that are felt in all the continents uh, across the, the land. And this year, Many records uh, have been shattered in, in different parts of the world um, and when it comes to uh, heat wave and, um, uh, and this year uh, is, uh, is on track to be, become the warmest year in record and um, so, so much more. You know, we're, we're facing rising frequency of uh, extreme weathers, not just heat wave, but droughts and flooding and um, wildfires in many parts of the world. So, uh, so keeping that below 1.5 will significantly uh, minimize, you know, reduce the uh, potential consequences caused by climate change. Uh, but so far with the, with the stock take, on the one hand, we can see the original projection is uh, if we don't take the agreement uh, based on Paris, uh, um, the ori original projection is for the temperature rise uh, to reach four degrees Celsius, mm. that will be catastrophic. And so far, you know, with all the all these countries coming together, we need to recognize, you know, we have already made some real progress. But in the meantime, 
there's no reliable path towards reaching the 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius target uh, at this moment. So much more efforts have to be made, much more actions have to be taken. You ask the question, you know, why, why did our special envoy, Minister Xie, uh, said this is the, the most difficult? Because this time it's about action, it's about delivery. Uh, so everyone not just walk, talk the talk, but have to walk the walk. So that make it far more difficult this time. So, Director Ma, let me stay with you on walking the walk. Um, uh, what will happen after COP28? Uh, because we have been talking about the fact that nation states need to follow. Uh, they have issued their own nationally determined contributions. Uh, they have to issue and uh, implement their own policies. Uh, what can we expect after COP28 at national, sub-national levels? By the end of the next year, uh, uh, all the countries are supposed to to to, to uh, submit uh, their new new uh, NDC, national determined uh, contributions, and uh, um, and and taking their own stocks and uh, uh, making all this disclosure. So hopefully, you know, they will uh, take into consideration this uh, this new consensus and try to enhance. Uh, the ambition and, and try to deliver. But in the meantime, uh, I think the most important uh, is to find the, the, the real, you know, the biggest consensus reached this time, I, I, believe, to, uh, I believe, is on the renewable side. You know, renewable energy to, to, be, to triple that capacity. I think that's the, uh, a real path toward uh, you know, energy transitioning. And on that, you know, globally, uh, we have seen a good trend. And particularly in China, the renewable energy uh, has been expanding in a massive way. Uh, taking solar power as one example, you know, uh, by the end of last year, solar, uh, solar power have reached uh, 400 giga. And our target, uh, and, and in the first nine months, another 120 gigawatts of solar have been added uh, in China. Uh, a year-on-year -year growth of 145%. Um, uh, uh, so the wind and solar put together, our target for 2030 um, will be reached by 2025. That's our forecast. So China's on track, you know, to, uh, to expand energy uh, uh, on the renewable capacity. And in, in the meantime, China is supplying the whole world with 80% of the solar panel and 50% uh, of the uh, wind turbines and about 60% of, uh, of the batteries uh, needed for new energy vehicles. Uh, uh, so on that, you know, contribution um, can be made by China and by many other countries working together. There's still hope to achieve 1.5. Right, right. Thank, thanks for all these insights. Uh, talking about China, Dimitri, you've been studying and observing and uh, engaging with Chinese stakeholders on climate. Um, in light of COP28, how do you see a green transition happening within China? Yeah, so uh, Ma Jun is just mentioning the renewables. And actually, in my view, this is the best news that the world has this year. Uh, it's not the outcome of the COP. It's China's incredible progress in renewable energy uh, manufacturing and also deployment. Um, so the installation of solar, the cost of solar, the efficiency, um, it's becoming now uh, uh, you know, credible that the world actually has a renewable energy solution which will take us to a zero, uh, a net zero future. And that, in the previous, previously that wasn't the case. You know, so 
being able to see that this industry actually works is is the most amazing news for us. It surprised everybody. It surprised us as well to see how fast this is growing. And that has to do with, uh, you know, China's China's basically making a really heavy bet that the world is going to transition away from fossil fuels and that the world is going to move to renewable, low-carbon power. And China's investing in that future and positioning itself incredibly well for that future by being the uh, uh, the largest, by far, producer of all of these renewable energy technologies. We're now in a point where uh, countries in Europe and the United States actually uh, are looking at China saying, wow, that's amazing, right? All these innovations that are taking place in China in the green sectors are world leading. And so that that is actually uh, providing the solution going forward. So within China as well, I'm sure there's still a lot of pushback from people in the fossil fuel industry but the, 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 on the whole, everybody can see that these renewables are really, really, really working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recently, um, we've heard that uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is, uh, is keen uh, on working with China in terms of delivering more EVs, as uh, Riyadh is also transitioning away from fossil fuel, or at least uh, diversifying their economy. Uh, Director Wu, finally, uh, we have uh, two minutes left. Um, maybe you can tell us about your observations. Um, how you truly felt at COP28. You've been in Dubai for, what, a week? Um, what impressed you being there at the conference site, talking with the stakeholders and the participants? Well, there were, there were two major sort of, I would call it, exponential curves actually influencing, you know, uh, the, the COP process there. So on the one side, we call it a negative tipping points as we're talking about intensified climate changes or the natural disasters and the loss and damages. So that's one side. Uh, we are definitely on that track. But in the meantime, there is the other side called a positive tipping points, and mostly because c- could be attributed actually to China's achievements or the case made by China in terms of accelerating clean energy transition or revolution, uh, solar, wind, EV batteries, you name it. Right? Without China, there is no way that such a you know positive tipping points could have happened to counterbalance the negative tipping points there. So I I'm really hopeful. Um, hopeful in a way the role of China. China has made the case and China is reaching out to global communities, sort of joint efforts, partnerships there. To a large extent, I think the reason why will be global community would agree on to, you know, sort of tripling renewable energies, mostly because China has made the case. And we need to build upon that sort of momentum and China need to figure out how to work more constructively and effectively with the global community countries, policymakers, as well as investment community, industries actually, to drive, accelerate that process so that we'll be able to fastly shift away, uh, transition away from fossil fuels. Well, once again, I want to thank our guests, uh, Madam Wu Changhua, China Director of the Office of Jeremy Redfin and Vice Chair of Governing Council at Asia Pacific Water Forum. Uh, Director Ma Jun, uh, thank you as well, Director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. We also have Dimitri DeBoer, Director of, for Asia at Client Earth. Thank you all so very much for being part of this conversation. With that, we come to the close of this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. I'll see you again soon.